We thank you that even though places around the world are burning it, that, your, that, that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God will remain forever. And we are so grateful for that. Lord, we thank you for its teaching and its conviction. We thank you for its passion. We thank you for its power and what it gives to us, its hope and its peace and its comfort and its truth. So Lord, I pray that you would bless our time this morning as we take a look at your word and praise you through it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I embark on a road trip and I reach my destination and somebody asks me how the trip went, I like to be able to say it was good and uneventful. Right? (laughs) Maybe many of you like to have that response too. It was good and uneventful. I don't mean that I didn't have a good time or that good memories weren't made, but rather what I mean is that we didn't break down, we didn't get into an accident, we didn't get lost. In that way, the term uneventful equals good (laughs) in that way. It's good because everything went according to what? Plan. And was, in my mind, anyway, normal and as it should be. But we're going to take a look at a man today whose whole life was probably pretty uneventful until one day when everything changed for him. In this way, what changed was a good event, the best he would ever experience, except for his reaction to it. We're going to take a bit of a break from our 1 Corinthians series, and we're going to spend the next month or so talking about the angelic announcements surrounding the birth of Jesus. This week, we're going to take the first one, and that's the announcement to who would be one of Jesus' earthly relatives, a priest by the name of Zechariah. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn there, Luke chapter 1. one of the first few books in the New Testament. And the first point that we come to is the day-to-day. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. The author of the gospel, according to Luke, was an educated person. We find out from Colossians 4.14 that he was, a, he was a physician. He was a doctor. He was into science. He had a natural gift of investigating symptoms of somebody to come up with a diagnosis for someone's health condition. That's, that was his livelihood, investigating symptoms to come up with a diagnosis and therefore being able to help the person. The gift of the mind was valuable to the Christian faith because he took it upon himself to investigate eyewitness accounts of Jesus and his ministry so that he could present a reliable book of accuracy and truth to a recipient he named Theophilus. That's what I love about the book of Luke, is Luke went around 
He spent time with Paul. He spent time with Mary, probably. He went and got eyewitness accounts of different people who interacted with Jesus to write all of this down so he could have an accurate record of Jesus' life. We learn that. You can read that in the first four verses of this gospel, in in the first chapter. Luke, then, the scholar that he is, places his first story of his gospel within what? within historical context. So somebody could go and look it up. It could, he, could, he specifically wrote it so that it could be corroborated. He doesn't just say, once upon a time, like uh, fairy tales do. He, puts it, he sets it within specific historical context. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, when the division of Abijah was serving in the temple. He writes that this takes place during the reign of King Herod of Judea. King Herod, or Herod the Great, as many historians like to call him, reigned about from 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C. So those of you who are instantly confused about where Jesus' birth ends up there, when we have zero, it was probably 4 to 5 B.C., accurately, when Jesus' birth was. Luke also says that a man named Zechariah was a priest at this time and belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Who here knows what that means, the priestly division of Abijah? Probably nobody. Uh, We know from Exodus that Aaron's descendants were to be the priests who served in the tabernacle, right? Remember that from reading in Exodus. Fast forward about 500 years, and in 1 Chronicles 24, 7 through 18, King David established priestly duty for the descendants of that first priest, Aaron. These descendants in 1 Chronicles 24 were were divided into 24 orders, each serving in the temple for two non-consecutive weeks of the year. That's how David divided it up. So at the time of this story, Zechariah of the division of Abijah was serving during one of his division's scheduled weeks during the year. Everybody with me so far? Okay. This priest, Zechariah, married a woman from Aaron's bloodline as well. We read that in in verse 5. So we see that Zechariah, what does that tell us? Zechariah strove to do everything right pragmatically so that any children Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, bore to him would also be a full-blooded descendant of Aaron. We learn even further from verse 6 that that, that they even were seen as righteous because they did everything God instructed the Israelite people to do. Verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Luke wrote all of this to establish something. In verse 8 we read, or verse 7 we read, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now he wrote all of that to show that Zechariah did everything that he was supposed to do according to the law, and he was seen as righteous as everyone, as everyone around him saw him, and even in the sight of God. But there was still something going on that they struggled with, that they experienced pain from. 
Elizabeth was physically unable to conceive a child, which in this time period was seen as a consequence for being unrighteous. You can imagine the heartache Elizabeth experienced because of this. But Luke is saying it's not because of being them being unrighteous that Zechariah and his wife were unable to have any children. In fact, they were seen as righteous for following God's laws. It was because God was leading up to doing something miraculous in their lives. It's similar to when Jesus would meet a blind man from birth and his disciples asked him whose sin it was to blame for his condition. Why is this man blind? Who's the one who sinned? Was it his, him, his fault or was it his parents' fault? And Jesus responds, it's neither. Their sin has nothing to do with it. This man was blind from birth so that God would be glorified in healing him. There was a plan and a purpose for this. But Zechariah did not know this yet. Verse 8. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, we learn from verse 7 that Zechariah and his wife were very old at this point. Zechariah had fulfilled his priestly responsibilities for two weeks a year, year after year after year after year. And he's well advanced in years now. There was probably nothing that had been surprising for Zechariah in all of those years. He just did the same thing year after year after year, and not much was different. But is that a precedent? Let me ask you guys. Is that a precedent that God necessarily follows? No, not at all. If, the, if things happen the same way day after day after day, that's not the way it always is. God, in His sovereignty, orchestrates that He will have a one-on-one -on -one experience with Zechariah in the holiest place on the planet at that time. Verse 9. So according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now why does this specify this? Because of the number of priests and Levites that could have been chosen to fulfill this responsibility, actually being the one chosen, first of all, was a very rare and very special occasion for Zechariah. Verse 9 tells us that he was chosen by lot to do it. In fact, according to one biblical scholar, this experience that happened later in Zechariah's life, where out of all the priests in the order of Abijah, he would be the one person chosen to enter the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the temple, and probably was the only time he would ever be allowed to do it. This one time in his life. Little did he know that this very rare and special occasion in his life was, was to become even more special. Verse 10. And, in the whole, and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. The offer of incense was done after the evening sacrifice and before the morning sacrifice. And the morning and evening sacrifices at the temple was a customary time for the people in Jerusalem to enter their public areas and pray as the sacrifices were being made. 
And then what we find out happening in verse 11 is, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. I think any one of us would have the same response to that. Zachariah, excited and nervous, went about giving the incense offering. He's already nervous. He's already shaking. This is the only time he's allowed to do this. He's chosen by lot. He doesn't want to mess it up, let alone get struck down by God in the Holy of Holies. He's already nervous. And boom, all of a sudden an angel shows up standing right next to the incense altar. Much like any one of us here, his reaction is one overcome with fear. How do you think any one of us would have reacted when we saw that? Probably would have dropped some things, don't you think? Maybe even ourselves. (laughs) Our knees probably would have gone weak. We probably would have passed out. So we have Zachariah's response here. He is gripped with fear. Secondly, we have the divergence here. Year after year, Zechariah went about his life in a day-to-day mentality. Nothing changed. Nothing would ever change. He did his priestly duty, and he continued to follow God, but he continued to not have children, and yet he still continued to follow God. But there's a giant divergence from what he is used to that happens right here. Not only has Zechariah been chosen to do this special offering of incense, he is now faced with an even greater anomaly, an angelic visitation. The angel's message to Zechariah is this, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Zechariah had apparently been praying for a child, maybe even daring to pray for a son, maybe even praying for a son at that very moment as he's offering incense to the Lord. And it's at that very moment that God answers that lifelong prayer out of nowhere in God's perfect timing. His first message is don't be afraid. How many times is that in Scripture? A lot. A lot. <laughs> I've heard it, it lines up with, what, 365. One, for, one message of don't be afraid for every day of the year in Scripture. Don't be afraid. And just so Zechariah has no doubt that the angel made a mistake, you sure you got the right guy? The angel calls him by name. Zechariah, the angel says. Yes, you. I'm talking to you. Do not be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. God does care about you. God does care about your wife. He cares about all the pain you've been through. And He does honor you following His commandments all of these years. Next are the words Zechariah have been longing to hear for years. Your wife will not only give you a child, but it will be a son to carry on your name. And one other tidbit of information here. You must name him John. That's the one other tidbit of information here. You can't name him whatever you want to name him. You must name him John. Now John, the English for the Greek Ionase from the Hebrew Yochanan, a form that combines the Hebrew word for Yahweh 
and Canaan, meaning the Lord is gracious or shows favor. And isn't that a perfect name? The Lord is gracious or shows favor to Zechariah and Elizabeth. God was truly gracious to Zechariah and gives him what he has been praying for. But even more than that, God is gracious to the Jewish people by giving them a forerunner for the Messiah. The angel then gives Zechariah further revelation about his son. Verse 14, You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Because John will be a fulfillment of God's grace towards Zechariah and his wife, he will bring them joy because they will recognize that grace. They will also have gladness. Or looking at the meaning of the word, give exaltation to God. Give exaltation to God for His grace upon them. When God answers your prayers, do you first of all recognize His grace? and are joyful for Him answering your prayers. And then on top of that, not just thank Him for that, but do you exalt Him for answering those prayers? Do you exalt Him? Do you raise Him? Do you magnify Him? Do you raise His name high when He answers your prayers? The birth of John, already mentioned, will be an illustration of God's grace to Zechariah and Elizabeth but also an illustration of God's grace on His people. And that's why the angel says in verse 14 that many people, not just Zechariah and Elizabeth, will rejoice at His birth. And this is why, verse 15, For He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and He will drink no wine or liquor, and He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, while yet still in His mother's womb. God will establish John as part of a grander plan. Because he's part of God's grander plan, he will be set apart. Verse 15 gives a similar command that is given to Samson's parents in the Old Testament. That he is to take the Nazarite vow and not touch certain things including wine and hard liquor. Samson in the book of Judges was also a miracle baby given to barren parents who was written as having been moved by the Holy Spirit at certain times. But he failed a lot, didn't he? He did a lot of things he wasn't supposed to do. And so, whereas Samson would not fulfill his Nazarite vows, and he would fail time and time again at keeping his Nazarite vows, John would, and John would also be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. So whereas Samson would only be temporarily filled with the Holy Spirit to do different things and kill different people and do all all these really strong things, John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was even born. Furthermore, verse 16, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It was prophesied that John would bring many of his fellow Israelites back to God, which he does end up fulfilling by baptizing, by teaching people to repent, telling them to to change their hearts and lives, look for the Messiah, Look for the kingdom of God. So we read in verse 17, It is He who will go as a forerunner before Him in the spirit and the power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This prophecy is fulfilling two prophecies in the Old Testament, in Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5-6. Malachi 3.1 is the beginning of a passage about the coming of God himself to his people. And it says, look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. John is identified with this messenger who will go before the Lord when he comes to his people. In Malachi 4, 5-6, through 6, we read, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. In verse 17, so we see this looks very familiar to us now that we've read verse 17. When verse 17, when we read that, the, the angel identifies John with Elijah that he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Even quoting a portion of this passage in connection with John. John is identified as the messenger whose purpose it is to turn God's people back to him and prepare them for his arrival. So John is not merely a miracle child for the sake of having a child and continuing a bloodline like in the case of Abraham and Sarah. He is something much more than that. This child will be the forerunner for God himself visiting his people. God incarnate, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. This angelic announcement is not only a divergence from Zechariah's normality of life, but it's a divergence from the world's normality of life. Everything is going to change. It changes Zechariah's world, and it changes the entire world. Everything is going to be different from this point forward. The prophecies are finally coming true. Almighty God, the King of the universe, is coming. And the first step of that arrival, the forerunning messenger, is now coming. It's only a matter of time now. In the old times, when a king would visit a village, he would send a herald before him, a messenger before him, to go into that town and say, Hey, you guys, the king is just down the road behind me. You guys better get yourselves ready. So he doesn't come, so you guys are all out of shape and kill everybody. He lets them know the king is coming. That's what, that, this, that's what this whole passage is all about. That John is that messenger showing up and saying, you people better get your lives right because the king is coming. And if you don't want a curse being put on the land, you better get your hearts and lives right and you better be looking for God himself. He's right down the road behind me. It's only a matter of time now. So we have the day of the day. We have the divergence. It doesn't go quite according to plan. The disobedience. Because this announcement is so much greater than any other birth announcement given to barren parents, Zechariah is held to a higher standard in his response. See, Sarah laughed when she found out she was going to give birth. 
but she didn't lose her voice when she laughed. Zachariah is held to a higher standard in his response. Zechariah's response to all this given to us is in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And what's interesting about this response is this. Not only was he picked out of extreme odds to be the priest chosen to offer incense to God, an angel appears to him. We know that he knows it was an angel because of his response. His response is not, how do I know you're actually an angel? His response is, how can I believe the message you're giving to me? That's what his response is. There's no reason to believe it because my wife and I are very old. In other words, Zechariah did not doubt the appearance of the angel and that he was who he said he was. He doubted the truth of the angel's message. Besides being the pick to be the incense offering priest and the appearance of a divine messenger, Zacharias still has his doubts. Can you believe that? The angel responds to these doubts in verses 19 through 20. And, he said, and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, we're going to see him show up again very soon here, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. We now find, find out this angel's name is Gabriel. Gabriel is the angel, of course, that has appeared before in the Bible in interpreting visions given to the prophet Daniel. He's going to show up again to give the birth announcement to Mary. Now, Gabriel, being the one giving the messianic prophecies to the prophet Daniel, should not be lost on us at all, especially in light of this. Gabriel's messages to Daniel were messianic in their prophecies. Now, Gabriel appears to earth once again, hundreds of years later, to announce the beginning of the fulfillment of those messianic prophecies. That supernatural messenger that gave Daniel messianic prophecies now appears to Zechariah to again give prophecies in connection with the Messiah. Gabriel gives his credentials and then says that the purpose of his arrival was to give good news. He says, you were supposed to believe this good news. This was supposed to be a great, wonderful experience. Everything about this was supposed to be good. This was supposed to be good news. But you messed up. All of this was supposed to be good, but you messed up. You're not going to change anything that's going to happen. Everything is still going to happen according to what I just told you. You're still not going to be passed over for this either. But you still need to suffer the consequence of your doubt. You're not going to be able to speak until a day specified by God. Zechariah, by his words, was essentially asking for a sign so he could be sure that what Gabriel was saying to him was true. Well, he got his sign, didn't he? He sure did. For Elizabeth's entire pregnancy, he was a walking, big, flashing neon sign that what God promised him was coming true because he couldn't say a word. 
See, Zechariah was held to a higher standard and suffered this consequence because he was supposed to know the stories of Abraham and Sarah. He was supposed to know the stories of Samson's parents and Isaac's parents and Samuel's parents. He was supposed to know all this. He was a priest and a leader who was trained in all of the history of God and His people. He was supposed to know about all this. He was supposed to know that God worked this way and he should have known better. He should have had more faith based on what God had already done for other parents who were not able to conceive. Above and beyond that though, Zechariah's prophecy had to do with his son being in connection with the Messiah that had been promised for ages. Instead of rejoicing that God chose him to be a part of that plan, Zechariah relied too much on what? His own human intellect. I just don't see how this is going to happen. Now we can bash Zechariah for his response and say, what a fool. Or we could learn from it. Zechariah was a human just like us. And I bet that every person in here, myself included, would probably have the same response and would probably have had to suffer the same consequence. So we can learn from it. Zechariah was a human just like us. Are there things in your life that God is asking you to trust Him with even though they don't make any human sense to you whatsoever? What's your response to that? Are you trusting Him in those things? Or are you doubting them? Are you relying too much on your human intellect? Or are you relying on your heart of faith in God's promises that He's going to see those things through and He's going to take care of you in the process? Like Zechariah being held to a higher standard because he should have known all the stories, we have them all right here for us. We should know all of them too. We should know that the God that made an entire nation form out of Abraham, that the God who gave Zechariah and Elizabeth a baby named John, that the God who would overshadow, overshadow His Holy Spirit over a teenage girl named Mary to bring forth the Messiah is the same God that we worship and serve and live for today. He never lost any of His power. He still works. He still moves. Zechariah could not run away after this, though. Verse, he couldn't just quietly slip away after this. Verses 21 through uh, 20, uh, 22. The people were waiting. Remember who was out there praying at this point. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. The people wondered why he was gone so long because it was customary for the priest who did the incense offering to get the incense. He's in. He puts it in the, in the uh, burner and he's out again. It took a matter of maybe a minute max. He was in and out. He went into the sanctuary, let, lit the incense and returned almost immediately afterwards. <laughs> Part of the reason for this is he didn't want to be killed on the way back through through the uh, curtain between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the world. The people are starting to wonder what happened to the priest that was supposed to do the incense offering. Where did he go? Why is he not coming back? Is he dead? 
When Zachariah returns, I'm sure everyone is wondering why he was gone so long. Hey, what happened in there? You came back out, you're still alive. So what happened in there? And for the first time, Zachariah has to try to get his message across without his voice. For the very first time. So he starts making hand gestures and saying, you know, trying to get people to understand what happened in there. And finally, they get that he saw a vision after he gestures to them. Next, we read in verse 23, when the days of his priestly service were ended, that week that he was supposed to serve in the temple, he went back home. We don't know if Elizabeth was with her husband in Jerusalem during his priestly service week, but the tension is still the same here. Zechariah must go to his wife and describe everything to her that just happened to him in the Holy of Holies and do it all without his voice and explain to her why he no longer has a voice right now. Husbands, is that a conversation you want to have with your wives? I don't have a voice because I blatantly disregarded an angel's message from Almighty God to me. Sometime after Zechariah returns home in a, in a city in the Judean highlands, we, we come to verses 24 through 25. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men, among humanity. The prophecy that Gabriel gives to Zechariah begins to come true. It all starts happening. Elizabeth becomes pregnant, but she doesn't want everyone in the village to know what's going on. It's between her and her husband and God. She knows why she's pregnant, and she knows who ultimately is the one responsible for it, and she knows who is within her womb. Here, Elizabeth is the first one to verbalize the next part of Gabriel's prophecy that John would be a joy and a delight to his parents. She's already joyful about it. Don't worry. When John is born and Zechariah affirms that his name should be John, he's able to speak again. Well, you find that out by reading further on. But here in our first message in this angelic announcement series this month, this Advent season, Let us recognize God's work in our lives. It may look like the same old thing day in and day out. It may look like God is not working or God is not answering prayers. But rest assured, the the, the God that made all of these miracles happen in His Word is the same God who is active and working and moving today. He's the same God who is answering prayers. God has never stopped working. He has never stopped working in your life, and He has never stopped working in the life of this church. God has never stopped working His plan in your life, even if it doesn't look like anything's going on. God has never stopped coming up with jobs for you to do for His kingdom. He has never stopped putting people in your path to talk about Him to. Just as Gabriel was given a job to do in announcing the good news of the coming of the forerunner of the Messiah to Zechariah, we have been given a job to do.
Just as Gabriel was given a job to do in announcing the good news of the coming of the forerunner of the Messiah to Zechariah, we have been given a job to do in announcing the good news that the Messiah has already come. We've also been given a very similar job. We have also been commissioned to announce the good news of what he accomplished for us on the cross and the eternal hope we've been given. We have been set apart to announce the good news that God is not only coming, he's already come, but he's coming back. Let us praise him and exalt him for intervening in our lives and answering our prayers. And let us exalt him for our high priest Jesus, whom Hebrews says talks with God for us, intercedes for us. Let us remain faithful to God no matter how bleak a situation might seem. And let us praise Him for making good on His promises, that He has established a new covenant with us, and that we will spend an eternity with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this message regarding Zechariah. We thank You for how he reacted. We thank You for what we can learn from it. We thank You for what was announced to him, that his son John would be the forerunner of the Messiah. This was the first angelic announcement regarding the Messianic prophecies given in the Old Testament hundreds and thousands of years before this. Lord, we're we're so thankful that we live in this time period that we can look back and see all the fulfillment of these prophecies and that you have also given us the job to be announcers, to be heralds, to be messengers, to tell people, you guys better get your lives right because God is coming. He's coming back. So Lord, I pray that you would give us the power to do that. And when you answer our prayers, I pray that we would recognize that and exalt you above all else. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.